0: Welcome inside the Legends Legends Lounge, Lounge. where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. Okay, I'm getting excited. This is my favorite time of year. All-star game approaching, draft, the whole deal, Los Angeles. We need a multi-time all-star. We need a Hall of Famer. We have the great Hawk. Great nickname, too. Andre Dawson's going to join us and enter the lounge soon. He also has a super unique post-playing career that I want to get into, which I'm not even sure you're aware of. Like, do you know one of his main roles uh, post-playing career?
1: No. Well, I just post-playing career more was uh, was being uh, with the Marlins in the front office with that, you know, and sure. uh, so. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Andre Dawson. He's a, a native Floridian from, from, you know, from Miami as I am. I was a big fan as a kid. And also, I want to hear his story about leaving Montreal, uh, Montreal and taking that that weird contract that he ended up agreeing to, that no other player in the history of baseball ever uh, has done or would do. So, I'm very excited uh, about one of the, the legends. And you're right, Scotty B. Timely with the All Star game around us. Let's spend a good chunk of
0: time with Andre Dawson. 21 seasons in the bigs, mostly with the Montreal Expos and the Chicago Cubs. And he was a superstar, MVP and home run derby champ in 1987, 1977 Rookie of the Year. Eight gold gloves, four silver sluggers, eight-time All-Star. Andre Dawson, the Hawk, the Hall of Famer, is in the lounge. And, Hawk, I always make sure that I mention this when we speak at least once a year at the Andre Dawson Classic. I like to say all of the sparkling accolades, despite basically playing on concrete with a carpet in Montreal (laughs) for years.
2: (laughs) Yeah, man. Oh man. I tell you, I look back and. I often wonder how was I able to do it? It seemed like every other year I was going through a different knee procedure Mm. and I really, it really didn't dawn on me until I was out of Montreal and playing with the Cubs in Chicago on that natural playing surface, uh, how much better I felt. And to the degree that uh, Don Zimmer uh, would actually give me days off when we were going the road and play on uh, the concrete surfaces or the the AstroTurf. And uh, my, my, it, it just felt so, I felt so much stronger. And that first year was an indication because I was able to go out on an everyday basis and I put together the best year of my career, and it was all about uh, being healthy, staying in the lineup, and feeling good. And I don't really uh, dwell on the fact of what if or what might have been. Uh, it was what it was. I was drafted by the Expos, and I got to play there for 10 years. And would I have liked to have been on a natural playing surface my entire career? Yes. Uh, what would have happened? I don't know. Uh, you know, things happened mysteriously, and things happen for a reason. But for me, the goal was to play 15 years. I uh, was uh, persevered enough to play uh, beyond that, and I would never tell a player uh, play the game as long as you can. Uh, with that in mind, playing 20 years, I, because when you get my age now, you're gonna feel the effect. You're <laughs> You're gonna feel the wear and tear, so get your money, make your money, and get out yeah. of the game for, so that you can enjoy your family, enjoy life, and go enjoy the golden years, if there is such a thing. But I had a, I had a a wonderful, uh, marvelous time throughout the entirety of my career, and when I look back, I, I wouldn't change anything. Hey, I, I played in an era in an era where there were some fun, great, exciting ball players, and I enjoyed it. I tell you what.
1: Uh, well, first of all, uh, not only Hall of Famer, uh, but the best, you know, regarded number one expo of all time. And there have been some pretty good ones. In fact, that 81 season, uh, you guys, because of the the strike that that hit, I, I had signed that year. So I remember that uh, as a young buck. But, uh, you know, I want to ask you about the growing up. You know, I first met you and the late but great kid Carter uh, at an event that was in high school that you guys were at. Uh, in Miami Beach in the Convention Center, and I was just in awe of, of uh, especially the the fact that you were from Miami. So, give us a, a little taste of the growing up uh, and, and being a Miami guy and 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 making it to the bigs as, as strongly as you did and as quickly as you did by by '77.
2: Yeah, I got my start uh, playing recreation ball. Uh, my uncle, uh, my oldest uncle, bought me my very first fielder's glove. And he introduced me to the game. And I can recall growing up being a Dodger fan. They they talked about the, the L.A. Dodgers at the time. And, of course, they were on the West Coast, so I couldn't get the scores until the following day. But I followed the Dodgers. And playing uh, from uh, level to level, it just was something that uh, kind of came across me. Hey, this is fun. This is exciting. This is what people do for a living. And I, I took the notion that I wanted to be a professional baseball player. So of course, you got to surround yourself with the, with the people who are going to, not really steer you in that direction, but uh, kind of have your back and support you and encourage you. And that's what I really, I think, needed the most was encouragement. And I, I played the game up to high school. I had my very first knee operation. And it was a result of a a football injury. And of course, all of the scouts disappeared. And I kind of saw my my dream falling apart. You know, it it was one of those instances where uh, the scouts that did come out uh, sort of disappeared. Uh, There was no real offers from any of the local colleges when it came to a scholarship awareness and i took the liberty of just saying well my grandmother wanted me to go to school she thought education was first and foremost and if you played the game someone would take notice and you know you may get a break that way but i just went to college with the idea of going out for the baseball team at some point which i did my my freshman year I made the team as a freshman walk on. I made the starting lineup, and I was given a scholarship and I played for three years, and i was uh, I was conference all american at at the end of my junior year, and I did see the unfamiliar faces in the in the stands uh, that were attending our games, much to uh, my understanding. I didn't know that there were scouts and um one of those. Uh, individuals in particular was Buck O'Neill, and it was uh, it was later on that my college coach told me who he was, and I at the end of again my junior year I was invited to a tryout by the Montreal Expos along with Clint Hurdle who was the high school phenom at the time out of Lakeland High School, and I was there with with uh, two other players, uh, Clint and myself. And the Expos gave me a long look. And I was informed at the end of the workout uh, if things fell the way that they would hope that they would hear from me in a matter of a week. And I can remember the very last thing the scout, well, he was Mel Didier. He was uh, the minor league field coordinator. And he said, Andre, have anyone approached you about the draft? And I said, no, I, I haven't talked to anyone. I haven't spoken to anyone. And he said, well, if anyone contacts you, here's my number. I want you to call me right away. Uh, because at that point, I had had not been I had not been to uh, any tryouts or anything, and no one had approached me about the draft itself. And I didn't hear from anyone. He actually called me the day of the draft, and he said, has anyone contacted you? And I said, Mr. D, I know they haven't. And I didn't know at the time what was going on, but he he was in a a big brouhaha with one of uh, the uh, I guess area scouts a cross check or whatever they were at the time, and they were trying he was trying to get Mel to move me up in the draft, I have the mm. exposure have a lot higher. And Mel said no. He said I, I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, he hasn't really. I've been looked at a lot by scouts. Uh, no one really knows that much about him, and I think we could um, we could probably let him slide down a little bit in the draft process, which uh, ultimately saw me getting drafted in in the eleventh round. How about that?
0: With the, and, one of the greatest players of all time, <laughs> nobody had noticed. <laughs> hey, I mean, and and you were at Florida A and M. And that's a historically black college university program. So one of two Hall of Famers to play for an HBCU program. Another pretty good name who is on that list, Lou Brock, who went to Southern. But, you know, Andre, you and I always chat, as I call the Andre Dawson Classic. So... That was truly an, an under-the-radar experience for you playing at school. I didn't know it played out that whole way through, but I guess thinking about the way things are back then, I feel like right now we're in a world where technology and, and communication and makes everything shrink. So even if there is you know a player at a school that doesn't generally pump out major leaguers, we would hear about him. But back then, you definitely were able to slip through the radar and it all worked out.
2: Yeah, it's a different time today. And trust me, if you if you're talented, you got ability uh, and you can play the game, someone is going to take notice. With social media, as you mentioned, uh, you just can't be missed. But it's just where we are, at the times that we're in. i tell you what, you put those great years with the Expos,
1: right? Ten seasons. And all of a sudden you're a free agent and you do the unthinkable. First of all, yeah, you got to go to the grass and we know what kind of year you had, you had an MVP year for a last place team. Oh, by the way. But the thing that stands out for me is that you were negotiating with them, your guy or yourself, and you said, you fill in the blank in the check. I'll play for what they, what you guys want to pay me. I believe it. They, they, they paid you a half a million dollars, right. Which you were worth, you know, in today's market, you know, 20 times that a hundred times that, but, um, Walk me through that because I've never had a chance to really ask you but as long as I've known you and loved you, man, as a brother, what was going on then in in that winter as you led into
2: that great season? Well, it was uh, during the era of collusion, uh, of course, and I in particular wanted to be one of those individuals who retired wearing the very same uniform uh, the entirety of my career but with the understanding that Playing on the AstroTurf uh, was starting to be telling and, and causing a lot more wear and tear than I really had anticipated. And for the first time after 10 years, I had the leverage of being a free agent. And I can recall sitting down uh, with uh, my agent. Uh, he had spoken to the general managers and I was mentioned mentioned in trade rumors uh, prior to getting 10 and five status. And I really thought that I would be traded uh, prior to the the end of the season, but uh, it didn't manifest. And I wound up uh, finishing the year year 10 in Montreal. And uh, my agent, uh, he made a call and he said, we're going to have a meeting with the owner. I don't really want to talk to the general managers uh, because I'm not going to get anywhere with them. And sure enough, he, he had my wife and I come up uh, the very last day of the season. And Charles Bronfman was the owner at the time. And he said, Charles, and this is Dick Moss, my agent. Dick had had a couple of vodkas. <laughs> and <laughs> he said, um, you know, he said uh, it's ludicrous that we're here uh, right now. Uh, this uh, young man should have been signed and they, or extended. Uh, mm-hmm long before you know today and he said you know if you don't have plans for him all I ask is that you don't screw him well those weren't his exact words he <laughs> said it a little bit differently and the only thing I could do I grab my head I say oh lord I know he didn't say that but that was Dick Moss and the the, the fun thing about like I guess, the irony about it was the money was made available by the owner, but the general manager, uh, Murray Cook, Bill Stoneman at the time, they said that it, it wouldn't take that, that uh, what they're offer, uh to me would not be met by another team and that, you know, eventually I would sign and return to Montreal. Now, uh, I really had a problem with it because it calls for a $200,000 cut and pay and Being a product of your minor league system, playing there for 10 years, to me it was a slap in the face. They had brought superstar caliber ball players in to try and sign who were reluctant to sign. I want to play across the border on an everyday basis. Yeah, they enjoyed the city of Montreal when they were visiting, but they didn't want to play on an everyday basis. So uh, we went through the winter, and there was no progress and they were offering a million dollars down from a million two. And I met with uh, the general manager at the time, well, I'm sorry, the vice president at the time, uh, president slash president, uh, and that was John McHale. And John said, he said, Andre, our office still stands. Uh, Have you determined what direction you're going in? At that point, I, had to honestly look at him and say, Mr. McHale, I appreciate the last 10 years, but uh, if I was to accept that offer, uh, I know that I won't be happy. I won't be happy going back, uh, having to first face uh, the people in the front office, knowing that I had to go through this process. And I just said, you know, I think it's better if both parties just moved on. I said, it's it's more about principle and pride. And I know that I won't be happy. I said, if I'm going to have to take a cut in pay, I'm going to go somewhere where I know I'll, I will make the game fun and it will be fun for me. And the only thing I could think about was Chicago because prior to the end of the season, there were Cub fans knowing that I was going to be a free agent who would comment, we'd love to have you here. You you will enjoy regular feel. And that, that kind of went a long ways with me. And we sat down and we said, we know that they're not going to negotiate with us. Uh, We're going to show up unannounced in Arizona. They were already in spring training. And he said, I need you to be on board. We're going to give them a blank contract and let them fill in what they think you're worth. And I realized it was a huge risk. I was sticking my neck out. I said, okay, if we're going to do it this way, then there's two teams that I have in mind in particular, one being the Atlanta Braves because it's still a natural playing surface in the National League closer to my home, which was South Florida, and of course the Cubs. And I went to Chicago first because I felt that they had the nucleus of uh, the championship team uh, in Tech. Well, they didn't win the championship. They lost to the Padres, uh, but they still had that team in Tech. And I felt that I could really help the team, uh, so that was my first choice. So we went out to Arizona. We uh, kind of—I think Dallas, Dallas Green—I uh, wanted to play the reluctant part initially because he wasn't aware that we were coming, but he agreed to sit down and talk to us. And I—I I opened it up. I said, "Mr. Green, I have a, a proposal I would like to make to you." All I ask is that you evaluate it, uh, fill in the blanks, and hopefully I can become a Chicago Cub. And he didn't really know what to make of it because he had never seen anything like it. And I can remember him making a comment to me that, well, I have young players that I I need to give a look and an opportunity to make this team. And I didn't really cut him off, but I said, I understand that. But I, I still think that you have... Uh, some players here that can get you over the hump, that can uh, get you back to the postseason. And I'm hopeful that I can be one of those players. And he said, well, they said, I'll have my my legal team to look it over, evaluate it, and I'll give you a call tomorrow. I said, I appreciate it, and I'm going to go to West Palm Beach and give the Braves the same opportunity tomorrow just to give you a heads up. And I flew back home. And sure enough, I got the call the next day and he said, "Mr. Dawson," he said, "the best offer that we can make you is five hundred thousand dollars," which of course was a five hundred thousand dollar cut and cut from what Montreal was offering. And I said, "I said, you know, I said that's that's fine and well, I'll accept it." And he got quiet for about fifteen seconds. I didn't hear anything. I thought I had actually lost the call, but he said, "I'm here." He said, uh, can I call you back in about an hour? And I I know, of course, knew what he had to do then because he, he really wasn't supposed to make me an offer. He made me an offer to refuse, but now that I accepted he had to experience with the commissioner. Wow.
1: <laughs> That's an incredible story, man. <laughs> that is it really is, it, story. It's a, you know, it's just <laughs> mind boggling. And by today's standard, forget about it. <laughs> Even by that standard in the seven.
0: And you had him speechless. And also uh, a bit that I took out of that is because I come across so many fans that always say, I oh, you know we don't impact the game. No, no, you, you do. You impact the game, not just at the game during, but then even with transactions. I mean, the impact that the Cubs fans made to you made a difference. And that even makes me think of Hawk the way that Cubs fans would bow to you. And I remember there was the, the moment, especially right when, when you bowed back. So there was this love affair with with you and Cubs fans that began even before you were a member of the
2: squad. Oh, I mean, once once I broke spring training, uh, I got off to a slow start. And from day one, when I would run out to right field, they would salaam to me. And I, you know, not being animated and especially not being a hot dog, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna acknowledge it. I may tip my cap, but I'm not gonna bow. Um, so I turned around and of course this was uh, a daily occurrence and I hit a grand slam. I can remember I hit a grand slam off of Todd Warrell in St. Louis that kind of got me going. And from that moment forward, it just seemed that something crazy was happening every day. I, I wound up having the MVP season. Yep. and the summer was—I mean, the summer oh was crazy—and I could have never envisioned the fans gravitating me uh, to that degree. They started Andre's army out in right field, and of course, you know, seasons, seasons, and the last game in Chicago, uh, they wanted to to see a home run, and that, that's pressure to go up and to try to hit a home run. Now you. You know, it, it happens. It happens by accident. But to actually know that this is something the fans will want to see. And I was able to work the, the count to three and one. I, what did I do? I hit a home run. And now I got to go to right field and they're salam. And I say, you know, I said, if I owe these fans anything, I really owe them this moment to salam back to them. And uh, I did that in a cra- the crate. The place just went crazy. It, 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 you know, it was a wild, wild year for me. Uh, it was the the best year of my career. I really didn't set any goals that year. I dedicated the season to my grandmother who had passed early on uh, in the year. And I just said, you know, God, I just want to stay healthy and have as much fun as I can. This is a new beginning for me. And whatever happens, happened. And I realized, you know, finishing runner-up to the MVP award in Montreal on two different occasions, once to Mike Smith, the other time to Dale Murphy, it wasn't going to happen there. And to have it happen uh, as a result of my first year out of Montreal and then playing in Chicago, it was just one of those wow moments that, you know, you look back, on, and you just say, you know, this is – This is a fairy tale. I could have never envisioned it happening this way. And I just enjoyed every moment of
1: 1987. I got one thing that X's and O's, because this is an incredible story, by the way, encapsulating that because of the contract, when you take it all in consideration, what he did and the huge cut, a team that ended up in last place, hitting 49 homers, leading the league, it, also in RBIs, winning the MVP. They, he was the year for the Cubs that yeah, year. They didn't really have a whole lot other to celebrate much, you know, a couple of really sta- standout pitchers, But really, as a team, Scotty, this was it. And and he made it happen. But in the X's and O's, you know, you came through an era where arms were incredible. Uh, you had one of the greatest arms in the outfield. You also had Ellis Valentine, uh, who played with you, sick arm. Teams, it seemed like every team had a guy. You know, Boston, Dewey Evans, Um, Atlanta, you know, Dale Murphy with a rocket arm, Dave Parker, one of the guys that I also emulated and loved with the Pirates. Do you see now with baseball, uh, and you were recently involved very heavily, you know, with the Marlins and other teams, what's going on with arms? The last great arm that I see retire was Larry Walker or Ichiro Suki. Are they just not long tossing? Is it not going, you know, infield, outfield, I think has gone, why are not great outfield arms any?
2: Well, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, you know, and as you mentioned, I did work for the Marlins uh, for 15 years, and uh, in particular, assisting the outfield instructor. And one of the things I tried to always encourage uh, the 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 young, especially uh, gifted that I saw that had a decent arm was to throw every day, uh, keep your arms stretched out, uh, see how far you can toss the ball, then close the distance and work on your power throwing. And one thing I think baseball got away from was infield and outfield. And I I gradually started to see uh, a lot of errant throws, uh, just a lot of uh, bad plays by outfielders, missing the cutoff man, overthrowing the cutoff man, and my approach was get to the ball as quickly as possible, work on your footwork, let your feet carry you to, you know, where you're going to throw the ball and your job is done, but you got to put the extra work in and building up your arm and have an arm strength. And yes, I, I played, like you mentioned, there were, there were a lot of great arms. Ellis Valentine probably was uh, the greatest arm uh, as a teammate anyway, that I saw, uh, you know, in the game. And he was A-plus accurate. His, his his throws were right on the money. But you mentioned a lot of lot of uh, guys that had great throwing on. But uh, and getting back to your question, yes, I think the fact that they got away from taking infield on an everyday basis so that you can know what your range is um, – you know, be able to know where you are at a particular time on the field and what kind of throw you got to make uh, to have that muscle memory sort of created as opposed to, well, now you in game type situations with, the you know, throws that got to be made and, you know, you don't know where the ball is going. So as a result, you see a lot of overthrows and I just think uh over time with the changes in the game and this being one of them in particular, you know, it hurt, uh, especially the outfielders, the infielders will get their work done. But I really think that it did hurt the outfielders when it came to uh, arm strength and accuracy.
0: And Hawk, you mentioned your time with the Marlins as, you know, part of your second act after your playing days, working with the organization. The thing that comes to mind to me is I can't, not talk to hawk about you know life after his baseball playing career and not mention you know one of the most i think fascinating second acts is <laughs> Getting involved in the funeral business. And Hawk, this is the perfect <laughs> spot to talk about it because this we, this is a podcast run through the Players Alumni Association. We Every single episode, Hawk, we talk about a Where are they now? About a former player who's doing something, you know, like we, we've talked about players running McDonald's franchises and becoming, you know, part of politics. I mean, you name it. Players have gone on to some fascinating second acts. And for you, I mean, I think you have one of the most incredible stories in terms yeah. of finding, um, you know, the funeral home business. And, and I've heard how in depth that you've been a part of, of this business in terms of, you know, I, I mean, you tell me driving a hearse, are you speaking at services? What is, how did you get into it? Family, friends? I mean, I'm loaded with questions. Oh, and I were talking about it before we had brought you on here for about 10, 15 minutes. It's, it's wild, so let loose. Tell me, tell me everything. We're tr- we're dying to know, quote
2: unquote. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. I I initially started out uh, as an investor in a different funeral home, other than the one that I own now, and while I was there, I, I'm still a, a, a an investor in that funeral home. But the particular one that I own, it fell into my lap about. Uh, 13 years ago, I was an investor in that when I uh, secured uh, the mortgage, the loan uh, on the property itself. And uh, we had some issues going forward that weren't addressed after uh, the sale of the funeral home. So we were shut down initially. And when you're shut down, you have to wait eight years before you go back before the board to be reopened. And it gave me the opportunity or time to think about, is this really what I want to do? Because growing up, now you got to remember, I, I wasn't a fan of uh, funeral homes, being around funeral homes, or death in particular, dead people. It, it, it just, you know, wasn't my cup of tea. And I, I wanted no part of it. But when I was confronted with this challenge, I thought about just, okay, selling the business. uh, That way I can be out of it, you know, without ever even having to have to operate it. And I saw that people would nickel and dime you. And I saw what it meant to a community. And I had two uncles who were retired at the time. And I sat down in a meeting and we discussed going forward. And they really convinced me that, you know, this is probably... Uh, something you may want to reconsider as opposed to selling, um, uh, because there are pastors in the area who are in support of it, and you know it's a viable, it's a, it's a, a viable necessity. And they were willing to come aboard and be the day-to-day operators. So I said, you know what? Uh, maybe you have a point there. And I elected to hold on to it, have a, a grand reopening. And I can recall my son and my daughter, they were there and they looked at each other and they looked at me and my wife and they made a comment. They said, what are they doing? (laughs) My daughter, who was an attorney, uh, so she wanted to know parts of it. And my son, uh, who at the time I felt I can come on, I can bring him along and have him learn the ropes and at least later on pass it down. Well, I met with my staff, and I can remember having a heart-to-heart. And uh, I was one of always quality and professionalism. And I made sure from day one that they understood that, that this is not about me. It's not about you. Uh, it's about uh, the families who uh, are going to be at their worst time. And uh, we're going to have to help them endure what the process is and in getting through it and moving on with their life. Now, we had to be good listeners, not really have all of the answers, because you got to let them mourn uh, and get through the process uh, the way they want to. But I felt after a while that maybe this is this is a calling. Um, maybe this is where, you know, God has placed me at this point in time in my life. I was still working for the Marlins, and I had a job with... A funeral home I didn't really need. I had a restaurant that kind of went under, and I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. But the funeral home was a little bit different. Mm. And finally, I got both feet underneath me, and I said, you know what? This is where I am at this particular point in time in my life, and I'm going to continue to always put my best foot forward, uh, because baseball taught me a lot of things uh, about being uh, a leader um you know about uh professional uh, about quality and that's really what you know I tried to instill in everyone uh, that I would hire is I'm not in, in 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 any sense or imagination at all I'm not concerned about quantity it's about quality and treating every family the same and making sure that at the end of the day that they're pleased to the point that we have provided a service for them and that can help them get through the grieving process. So within 13 years now, and uh, that business pretty much carries it on. We we ran into a tough time uh, back last year when we had the, um, I'm trying to think of which variant we had, the Delta variant. Uh, because my facility isn't, Uh, It isn't built to accommodate 15 cases at one time. So jokingly, I would say to my staff, okay, uh, you, 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 you're going to have to take two of these bodies home with you just to keep them loose and make sure that, you know, they weren't stressed in any way, um, weren't burned out. And I just say, you know what, we got to just get to tomorrow and tomorrow will take care of itself. And for six weeks, you know, we were able to to get through handling um, probably ten to fifteen cases a week. And because of the size of my, fill, my uh, facility, you know, we got to be a little bit creative, and we made everything work. So I'm 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 happy with where I am at this particular point in time. Yes, I'm I'm still involved in the game. I work with the Cubs, but uh, this is something, again, I feel that it's, it's a calling and it's where God has placed me.
1: Scotty, all I can say about that, when he mentioned quantity, I mean, it's about quality, not quantity. He should call it 1987, uh, uh, you know, funeral home, because no greater year for a guy that played about quality, <laughs> but for less quantity than in 87. So I think you need to rechange it, Bill Hawk. I'm telling you, let me be your PR guy.
0: But that's the thing oh, is that, and that, that's, I mean, that it that's is, my, what he is about quality. That's my big question though, is, Hey, when, when you're there, do people recognize you because you're a recognizable man, you are a presence, sure. yeah. uh, Hawks. So I'm sure you've come across some people when you're there that, you know, they're at the funeral, but they're like, Hey, by the way, are, are you Andre Dawson?
1: Can you sign something for me here while <laughs> we're at the
2: funeral? <laughs> Hey, Believe it or not, you know, it has happened and <laughs> a lot of people, that come in and of course, you know, I'm pictured up on one of the monitors and I try to and I, I tell my staff this, I'm not going to get in your way, i you're adults I'm going to let you police yourself, but if I have to get to that point, I will. So, you know, do what you know what you're supposed to do and what is expected, and I'm going to stay in the background. So when people see me for the first time, they say, "You know, I was I was told I heard that you were the owner, but I had to see it to believe it." <laughs> uh, you know, now I get I get phone calls um, that come in. I get I get calls from all kind of people or from around the country, different funeral directors. Uh, different pastors and preachers and uh, they commend me, you know, for uh, turning, you know, my life over to um, uh, that particular type of process. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, kind of open your eyes in a sense that, hey, you know, not everything is for everyone, but the thing that is meant for you uh, you can't run away from it uh, uh-huh. because, you know, it's where God is. That's what God has in store for you. So uh, like I said, I, I, I did what I wanted to do in life uh, for a very long time and I enjoyed it. And of course, you know, I thought, what am I going to do uh, post career? And I knew I could stay around the game. I didn't want to manage. I didn't want to coach. Uh, I didn't want to put the uniform back on full time. But I felt that there was still a a presence uh, that was needed in the game for a guy of my statue. And I just wanted to feel around with that and see what that was. And that Mm -hmm. entailed being an ambassador. So I continue to be around the game in that regard. But uh, what is that one particular area thing uh, that is for you or where you need to be, and this again, where you know, simply God placed me, and I had to, you know, put my big, big white pants on and say, okay, I got to embrace this, and I got to make it work because now your name is attached to it.
0: That's what the Legends Lounge is all about, mm-hmm. Hawk. We, this was a pleasure, really. Always such, mm-hmm. such a delight to talk to you. Love you, Hawk. Hey.
2: Thank you guys. It's my pleasure. And listen, anytime you guys stay safe, all the best to you. God bless you.
1: Thanks buddy. You too. You too,
0: Hawk.
2: Take care, my friend.
0: I think many people will be surprised unless they've read, you know, a feature story or something (laughs) about Andre Dawson about that. That was the part that I was really excited to get to eventually was the fact that he's running a funeral home. It's it's a very interesting job, to say the least. And like he says, basically, someone's got to do it. And he has the the moxie and the understanding and the respect of the job to do it well.
1: Well, listen, he killed a lot of baseball. So, I mean, I think that in that sense, (laughs) it just followed suit. But I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, That definitely was surprising. You asked me if I knew what it was. I didn't. Um, But I did want to hear about the Chicago Cubs, you know, blank contract, uh, blank check, if you will. Uh, And he was just, you know, the career he had uh, was just phenomenal and everywhere he went. Uh, He was a stud. So uh, it was great to
0: have a true legend join our lounge. And thanks to Hawk. And now right to, because we took up a lot of time with Hawk, which rightfully so, this week in baseball, we're just coming off July 4th. So I picked one July 4th, 1985. Of course, something weird happened in 85, 16, 13, in 19 innings on fireworks night in Atlanta between the Mets and the Braves. (laughs) I remember that. It was ridiculous. Game ends 3.55 a.m. Eastern time, local time. There were multiple rain delays. Latest finish in Major League history at 4.01 a.m. postgame fireworks. I mean, what? Yeah, I did not remember that because I wasn't alive, I but that was ridiculous. I do remember that. It was crazy. And the fireworks
1: still worked. People were still sticking around and <laughs> enjoying it. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it figures that it'd be Atlanta because they've had some of the longest, craziest games. So remember the Mickey Mailer game where you ended up hitting the home run or something to, to win it as a pinch hitting pitcher. And uh, so, yeah, no doubt. There was also a game in 1925 that went 15 innings with nobody scoring uh, between two pitchers. And uh, and finally it ended So on, on July 4th.
0: So crazy stuff on uh, this week. 4-1, I was like, was it bright out no it was still dark no, I guess, for fireworks yeah. i don't yeah. know it's not really yeah. a time that i'm awake you know yeah <laughs> Ish. yeah in Sometimes college in, co-
1: in college you were awake for those fireworks
0: oh i'm <laughs> never awake early that was that was my point i can get to four but i can't wake up <laughs> you, you know i'm not i'm not the early morning come on guy, let's right. we way. had we've had the lounge day open extra a couple of times that you know
1: you've been sticking around at three four that's project. what i'm saying but I'm don't senior. ask
0: me to come in to, you know, play golf or something at the lounge. It's <laughs> not a country club. It's a lounge. Right in the morning. Okay? Yeah. No, it's a <laughs> don't get it twisted. It's a lounge. Where are they now time oh and this is a former first baseman outfield catcher played from 93 to 2004 Marlins and Brewers part of the 2003 World Series champion Florida Marlins retired in 2004 the name is Brian Banks and after his career he went to school graduated 2011 University or let's see Arizona School of Dentistry and Oral Health completed his residency the whole deal owner operator of a pediatric dentistry office. And the slogan, serving tiny teeth with a big heart.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, listen, love the part that he was a a professional baseball player. Uh, I hate going to the dentist, so I don't want to see him. I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm offended. uh, My
0: dad's a dentist.
1: uh, Yeah, well, I love you. (laughs) I don't want to meet your dad
0: inside an office. Right. You want to meet him outside the office. (laughs) I want to go meet him. Baseball fan. You meet him at the ballpark. Yeah,
1: I am going to personally invite him to the legends lounge <laughs> and he's gonna have vip didn't have to he's gonna go right through don't stand in line to be your dad but i don't want to meet him at his office come exactly the and he, he'd be happy to come although he'd probably be like, You're talking yeah.
0: to yankee stadium I'm nice. in, baby let's go <laughs> so with that thank you so much to the hawk andre dawson for joining us we do this every week and next week we'll get ourselves ready for all-star week Which is following that We're two weeks away From the Midsummer Classic The Lounge The Late Night Lounge Is closed The Legends Lounge Podcast Is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing Hit us with questions or comments At legendslounge At mlbpaa.com Check out our memorabilia at MLAMAuthentics.com. Later, legends.